Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canastracy. Hello, everybody. This is episode number 11, and we're going to be interviewing our friend Dominic Giardino. Disclaimer up front. Dominic is a clarinet player, but he has a lot of early American brass band experience and actually currently works down in Colonial Williamsburg both as a military history interpreter and as a musician. So his experience both with early American brass band music and his everyday involvement in the realm of historically informed performance and living history and interpretation made the interview very unique and I thought really interesting. So I'm excited for everybody to kind of have a chance to check that out. Yeah, it was great to catch up with Dom and hear what he's been up to since we both graduated undergrad. And I really enjoyed hearing his perspective on historical music performance, given um, his educational background, doing a master's degree in historical clarinet um, abroad, and then his current career at Colonial Williamsburg, uh, where, as you said, Chris, he's a military history interpreter and a musician there. Um, And he's got a lot of other stuff going as well, other playing projects. And he really was just a joy to talk to. He played in uh, a previous guest on the podcast's episode, Dr. Michael O'Connor. Dom played with uh, both Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band, where he's going to be a featured soloist on their upcoming album that was recently completed around a fundraising that's going to put that recording project in, into production soon. So he was on that, and he was on their first recording also. And here's a little teaser of him playing the opening cadenza for a solo on that upcoming album. founded um, when he was in high school the Battery B First U.S. Artillery Brass Band down in Key West, Florida, and that's actually how he met uh, Dr. O'Connor. So I know that they have done some side-by-side things with uh, Dr. O'Connor's groups and that band that Dominic founded. So there's definitely a strong connection between those two guests. So before we dive into the interview, be sure to check us out on our website at www.eabbpodcast.com. On that website, we have Uh, a host of resources that include a list of current American brass bands, uh, early American brass bands, uh, as well as bands that have been recently retired or deactivated, and a nice uh, list of available recordings of early American brass band music. So go ahead and check all those out in addition to the show notes for this episode that will be available on the show notes section of the website. So please enjoy our interview with Dominic Giardino. Great, Dom Giardino, thanks for coming out, turning on your computer and talking to us for a bit. We're excited to have you. Of course, really glad to be here. Thanks uh, both Chris and Stephen for the invite. It's been a huge pleasure keeping up with the work you guys are doing and um, you know, glad to have the opportunity to speak to you. Yeah, Thank great. You. So Dom, I know you fairly well. We. We're in undergrad together, same graduating class. But for the people who might not know you, could you talk a little bit about uh, your background, where you went to school, and kind of how you got interested in historical music performance, kind of where all that began? 
Yeah, sure. So I was actually born not too far from where I'm currently living. I'm currently in Williamsburg, Virginia, but I was born down in Norfolk, uh, raised in a military family, so moved around quite a bit. Ended up in Key West, Florida for high school. From there, I went to the Eastman School of Music for my bachelor's in clarinet performance. And then in 2016, um, applied for and won a Fulbright grant to go study in The Hague in the Netherlands with Eric Koprik to pursue my master's in early music. So that's a little bit about my educational background. Um, Just to clarify, all of this is in clarinet performance, correct? Yeah. So the only difference is with the uh, master in early music is it's a little bit more broad in the sense where it's sort of a combo musicology and performance degree. So it's it's an applied degree on historical instruments, but mm -hmm. sort of going further into um, research techniques and research skills to help inform techniques or playing styles that would be associated with, say, 18th or 19th century technologies. So it's a bit of a, of a deeper dive into, you know, it's, it's funny because we like to call it niche, right? But really what we're looking at is straight up 200 years of music history, which yeah. really all we're excluding is the 20th century <laughs> and, you know, 20 years of the 21st century. When you uh, were doing the instrumental work on in your masters, what types of instruments did they have you branch off on to, to play hands on? Yeah, so the biggest instrument that we deal with is historical clarinetists when we're studying our five key clarinets. These are what would have been familiar to Beethoven's uh, sort of early compositions, but primarily people like Mozart, Haydn, basically anybody between 1760 and 1810 was writing for five key clarinets. Um, other than that, though, Bassett horns, uh, you branch in a later 19th century clarinets like 12 key clarinets or 13 key clarinets, um, such as Mueller system, or actually even the, the later 19th century instruments that I play um, are some more sort of, uh, not advanced, different systems, 12 key Clinton system clarinets. Uh, and then also some earlier stuff. So uh, Baroque clarinet, which a lot of people don't really, mm. I think, realize there's a difference between Baroque clarinet and then Chalamo, which a Chalamo is not a clarinet, uh, but is a single reed Baroque instrument uh, that existed at the same time as a Baroque clarinet. The biggest difference really being a Chalamo is kind of a much more vocal instrument. It doesn't, it doesn't really sound very bright at all. It was most commonly associated with vocal music. And Baroque clarinets are, I mean, quite literally trumpets with a reed on it. I mean, it's, it's really, really crazy. If you hear a Baroque clarinet, they were used to substitute for trumpets all the gotcha, time. So gotcha. Telemann cantatas, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, that's a cool uh, kind of degree program where it's, it sounds like it's almost a hybrid, you know, of music performance and a little bit of music history. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a, a big part of the degree program was um, was research. I mean, we had to have a research document in addition to our two recitals. So I did all of my research on the 19th century clarinetist Heinrich Bermann, who actually had his start in um, military bands in in um, the Prussian Empire in the 18th mm -hmm. century, uh, or the Kingdom of Prussia in the 18th century. Um, so I <laughs> kind of through that, I became more and more interested in kind of the development of military bands. I've always been really interested in military bands just because of how I sort of stumbled into historical performance with my mm -hmm. work with uh, Mike O'Connor's guys and 47th PA band. And then of course, starting my own brass band when I was in high school. But it wasn't until I think I had 
time and and focus to really do a deep dive into say early 19th century and late 18th century german military bands that i kind of got a better perspective of what i should be looking at when i'm doing my research sort of in both directions you were mentioning that you did high school down in key west florida so i'm assuming that that's when you first met dr o'connor was that down there yeah, so I met him in 2010. I want to say it was February 2010 for our Civil War days. Um, and actually the whole kind of way that they came down there, and I'm, I'm fairly certain you all talked to Dr. O'Connor or Mike about this uh, in, in his podcast uh, episode. But, you know, we were, for, for a few years, I think they were trying to talk with the Friends of Fort Taylor, which was a nonprofit organization meant to preserve the Civil War fortress that is on Key West. For those listeners who don't know, there are um, there is, in fact, a 19th century fortress on the island of Key West that was really, really important for the naval blockade of the Confederate States of America throughout the Civil War. It was um, one of the key points in the Anaconda Plan that linked up with Fort Jeff and then to the Mississippi. Um, But yeah, I met him because his group came down. They were funded by the Friends of Fort Taylor to come down and and do some performing and mentoring of the band that I started in um, the preceding spring. So in the spring of 2009, I started a brass band because I got sick and tired of uh, fumbling around with fifes and bugles mm-hmm. and drums, all of which I'm, I'm completely not proficient on any of those. I said, you know what I can do? I can at least wave my arms around and, and have a brass band. So <laughs> that's what I decided nice. to do. Had a, had a lot of support from the Friends of Fort Taylor, and um, that's sort of where that link happened. Nice. Can you talk maybe a little bit about that brass band you started? I know you said you conducted it, but what was kind of like the makeup of the players? Were they high school students that you were in school with, or was there some community there as well it was entirely high school students so yeah it was really something that we started kind of just as a branch off from band i mean we had a we had a a pretty sort of close-knit band program i would say and you know it seemed like there was a real potential to explore this music that i thought was not really being explored you know little did i know there's this whole other world out there right Mm -hmm. so you know (laughs) i was really sort of coming to terms with you know what I wanted to do musically. This was around the time that I was also becoming really serious about about playing the clarinet. And this was my way, you know, some people joined a youth orchestra. We didn't have youth orchestra. Some people are going to symphony orchestra concerts all the time. We didn't have symphony orchestra concerts all the time in Key West. Mm-hmm. I saw this as a way of maybe connecting to a broader musical world. And so I asked some friends um, to join up and we started a quintet. So we had two trumpets trombone, um, horn, and tuba. That was sort of the the first iteration of the band. And we played actually in spring of 2009 at the fort for something I I can't remember, but that was sort of our first, (laughs) our first performance. And, you know, we, we wore our high school band concert uniforms. (laughs) Um, You were were conducting that quintet or you were playing one of the brass instruments? I was conducting. Yeah. So I, uh, I did a little bit of playing with them when we would do like school events. So we did one, um, one or two school events where I subbed in for one of the cornet players. But at this point, you know, all of the transcriptions I had were brass quintet transcriptions. It wasn't until later that I started, well, not later, but about a year or so until I would get my hands on some other things, which would come with my association with uh, the 47th PA band. And eventually we really expanded into, you know, the regular instrumentation you might expect. We had 
E-flat cornet players, but they're playing B-flat trumpets, which they hated. I would not mm -hmm. recommend doing that. That is a oh, miserable yeah. experience, especially for a you know 16-year-old trumpet player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really one, put... one song, and then your chops are dead after that. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a really, really big challenge at that time, um, which is actually why the technology you know, becomes important, right? When you, when you get the right instruments for the music, things start to make a lot more sense, and you can actually you know, do bigger or broader things. Um, mm -hmm. So we eventually did evolve into a full size band. We just didn't get period instruments until about 2011, 2012, right around there when we got some of those instruments that Mike was talking about. Um, the one, the early ones he bought for Newberry's Victorian cornet band. So we had mm -hmm. late 19th century instruments that we were dealing with, which yeah, yeah. I mean, both simplified and complicated <laughs> things, yeah, intonation right. wise for sure. But. Definitely. Yeah. It sounds a lot like maybe where we were a semester or two ago with the band here at at Mason, you know, starting with this. I mean, because Chris, I wasn't involved right from the start. I mean, Chris, Chris had started that group before I got into school here. Um, and, you know, when he asked me to, to kind of start playing, you know, it was the a lot of the gigs were the smaller quintet or, or sextet. Um, and then now, you know, we have more members and we're start starting to get the period horns to trickle in and it's you're you're dead you're dead on the nail there that it, it simplifies some things and complicates other things especially when you're mixing like two e flat cornets with like modern euphoniums that are playing the tenor horn and baritone part <laughs> you know? right well well how do you do it right i mean it's it almost and if you, <laughs> i would love to hear actually about your experience because our biggest issue is pitch right i mean it, oh, yeah. a lot of the 19th century band instruments are are high pitch you know yeah. quite quite frankly they play best at a four, five, four, a four, five, five, a four, five, six. And, every, yeah, you know, yeah. we're trained to play 440. Yeah. Um, that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of pulling the like cornet the tuning slides out as far as they could comfortably go and then pushing our tuning slides all the way in. And then we were like somewhere in the ballpark, but it was a lot of lifting up and down, especially depending because... on what octave you're in, you know, because yeah. the, the higher octave on some of those period horns, they, the pitch just keeps going up. On yeah. certain partials so yeah it's tricky sorry chris i cut you off no it's okay the thing that helped with us also is that we have the modern horns we have a handful of 1860s period horns but then we also have a few like 1900 1910 horns also that are like not quite as sharp but they're they're still pretty pitchy so i think we just have you know we all try to meet somewhere in the middle but by having that blended interpretation of what a is it kind of you know in some ways makes it not as abrasive with like individuals sticking out. We're all kind of just like agreeing on some type of aggregate a, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, that's what you have to do. I and mean, that's historically speaking, that's what people have always done until, you know, we put microphones in front of musicians and told them to, to pump out albums. Right. So it's, yeah, it's really not until the 20th century that we get this sort of, you know, intense standardization of, of pitch. So are, are all of the period horns y'all are using high pitch or is it it's a mix like even your 19th your 20th century horns are they hp or i think the the 20th century the early 1900 horns that we have are supposed to be uh standard uh modern pitch but okay. they're just not they're just not very good they they just play yeah. in, incredibly sharp um, yeah but still not as sharp as the horns that were built to be you know the right. historically pitched it's nasty <laughs> right you mentioned the first couple when the band was starting out you played in like your high school concert stuff. But then did you guys ever get uniforms, you know, when you started to acquire the instruments a little later? 
Yeah, actually, our association with the high school was pretty slim. We weren't okay. really truly associated with the high school um, for you know whatever reason. It just right. seemed more natural for us to be pursuing this um, outside of school. So most of the stuff we did was at Fort Zachary Taylor, the, okay. the state park. Um, and actually, right off the bat, we were able to get the money from the Friends of Fort Taylor so that by Civil War Days 2010, which was kind of our real premiere, we had uh, we had uniforms. We had Civil War uniforms that were kind of built to the imagination of <laughs> what we, we thought was, was correct, which, it, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like um, I've seen sort of a lot of parallels, at least in, in keeping up with the George Mason band on um, on social media and then, you know, remembering back to what we were doing doing back then you know you, you want to try to get generic stuff so that you can you're you're trying to create your own thing right and that, mm-hmm. that's what we were doing we weren't trying to create one specific band um, yeah. so we we just went with you know your regular light blue union pants we just had sack coats four button sack coats we just had forge caps i mean we were just trying to keep it as generic and, and quite frankly as economic as humanly possible yeah, because these right. things can get really expensive um but yeah i mean aside from that we we they still do have that set of uniforms i mean it's it's kind of unfortunate i think the band has has stopped being so active in the last few years it's hard to believe that it's been now 11 years since we kind of put it together and and it had a good five or six year run um but it's hard to keep up the momentum with something like that i mean it it really without constant leadership it's really really difficult were the instruments purchased by the individual members or was that done by the historical organization also to help you with those instruments uh, completely on loan from from mike oh, okay. gotcha. so yeah we we just lended those um instruments and then returned them when we were done with them so when we weren't using those we were using modern horns for the for the first two years we were just completely on modern horns which made it really difficult to, to do our sort of combined concert right. with the 47th PA, PA guys when mm-hmm. they uh, uh, joined us. But, you know, you make it work. And like you said, you find an A, you know, maybe not the right A, but you find yeah. an A. Yeah. So then how much early music or kind of historical stuff did you do at Eastman? Because I honestly forget. I mean, I know we had the, the early music ensembles, but they seem to be more string based um, with Professor Odette there. So I've, yeah. I've, I don't even remember kind of what opportunities there were, but was what, I mean, obviously you did your master's degree in historical clarinet, um, but was there any, was that bubbling in at Eastman a little bit too? Yeah, well, actually, so this goes all the way back to, uh, you know, so much of what I, what I do now and so much of my deep dive in early music is really completely credited to people like, Mike O'Connor and Douglas Hedwig and mm-hmm. Jeff Stockham and Steve Lundell, these guys who I became associated with through uh, my early brass band stuff. Because in 2013, it was really, so even before that, when when we're talking about this a Battery B first US artillery brass band, I didn't really realize there was such thing as historical performance. These guys in the 47th PA came down to Key West They played on these funny looking brass instruments, which I thought they just kind of did for fun. And then they would go back to wherever they came from and live their life. So it wasn't until probably 2011, 2012 that, you know, I would really start having these conversations with people like Brian Canner and Steve Lundell, who do play 18th century brass instruments 
professionally with groups up in Boston, New York. Mm-hmm. And I came to the realization, oh, this is this is an actual thing. This isn't just something that you have to do as a hobby, right? You can mm-hmm. sort of explore um, the real performance potential of these instruments in, in a serious uh, way, even a professional way uh, to some extent. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, uh, the Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band, which is you know, the 47th Pennsylvania (laughs) band, just 20 years in the future with instruments. (laughs) Um, They uh, were going to the Vintage Band Festival, which is a a band festival they've participated in many times and Mm -hmm. hopefully will continue to participate in uh, moving forward. And they wanted to start adding woodwind players. And at this point, I think they had a few experiments in the past that didn't really play out, but they said, okay, well, this kid that we've been working with in Key West, you know, he's going to Eastman, he seems to be a serious clarinet player. Let's just invite him, get him an instrument and see what he can do. Um, Well, they invited me. I immediately bought an instrument, which I don't recommend doing. Just buying an instrument online worked out for me. I wouldn't recommend doing it. Um, Was that an eBay acquisition by any chance? uh, It was actually through the Wichita Band Company. I don't know if you are familiar with those guys, but they, Mm. I mean, their primary service seems to be just band instruments for local high schools and stuff, but they actually collect um, and refurbish a fair amount of 19th century instruments. I would actually check them out if you're looking for horns. Yeah, yeah, Um, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I got in touch with them. I saw there was a clarinet I really wanted, late 19th century um, Albert system uh, clarinet. They said, eh, it's gone, but I'm going to Paris in a few months. And and when I get back, I'll let you know what I have. This was the the owner of the shop. They emailed me a few months later with this beautiful rosewood uh, clarinet Clinton system instrument uh, that was built between 1867 and 1884. And I just kind of jumped at, jumped at the purchase. It was high pitch. turns out being, you know, it's, it's really high pitch. It should play <laughs> theoretically between a 454 and 456 with the original mouthpiece. Oh, it's, you know, in the four sixties. I mean, it was really <laughs> gross. It was really, I mean, I'll tell you, I wrestled that instrument like nobody's business and, I will never play on the original mouthpiece ever again for as long <laughs> yeah. as I live. I mean, wooden mouthpieces do not get better with age. That's just science, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> so uh, I bought that instrument and and joined the band in, in 2013 in, in uh, Northfield, Minnesota. And it was it was great. I mean, it was a huge challenge because I'm you know trying to get my pitch down to where they play, and and it was there was definitely a big learning curve, but it wasn't you know, a failed experiment. In the end, we were able to make it work. We were able to find an A, negotiate an A. And a year later, I was recording their first album, um, which uh, came out in 2000. We recorded it in 2014. I think it came out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, then at Eastman, really, the the first, to actually return to your question, at Eastman, <laughs> uh, there, there wasn't a lot for me to do. I mean, that that's kind of why I, I went off on this. Right? Because uh, at Eastman... In, in the summertime, I would be playing historical clarinets. Mm-hmm. In the uh, you know during the year, and at Eastman, I'd be playing strictly my BAME system clarinet. Um, so there wasn't a lot going on. It wasn't until about 2015 that I got really serious about exploring early music, and again went online, bought another clarinet this time an 18th century reproduction, um, mm-hmm. and explored some opportunities. I went to Germany over the summer of 2015 to study uh, for a week with Concerto Kern, which is um, a really notable early music orchestra based in Mm -hmm. Germany. 
And from there, I started to have some really serious discussions with some other early music people at Eastman to try to put together some projects, most notably Perry Emerson, a, a flute player friend of yeah. mine, who actually works for the Boston Early Music Festival now with Paul Odette. So oh, nice. he's, he's doing really, really great. Um, and yeah, we put on a, a sort of a what we would call a festival <laughs> yeah. in in 2016 of some early music concerts and some early music adjacent things called the Gibbs Street Symposium. But that really at Eastman, that was sort of the extent of of the possibilities there. I mean, other than that, we I, I had the opportunity to do a few coachings with Malcolm Bilson, who's a notable forte pianist, perhaps the George Washington forte pianist mm -hmm. uh, in America. Um, he lives down in, in Ithaca, but we have a forte piano at Eastman and I actually did some period playing on my senior recital. Uh, so, I mean, it, it really was all completely sort of self-sculpted stuff. I mean, you were completely right, Stephen. All of the early music at Eastman is string and plucked string based. And that's, you know, it, it's kind of out of necessity. There, there's some broke oboe, but really mm -hmm. when we're talking about the, the early music stuff, it's what we would conventionally consider early music. It's not 19th century <laughs> or, right. or late 18th century music. Well, that's part of what my doctoral research is focusing on, the this idea that early music at the university college level is basically just baroque ensembles and you know it could be uh harpsichord or sometimes organ work but yeah a lot of times it's it's a string ensemble uh my fiance jenna was fortunately able to get a hold of a baroque flute and play in it during her masters on baroque flute but yeah again it, it's mostly a string ensemble so this idea of trying to get wind players Euphonium yeah. players, we, we euphonium <laughs> players need all the gigs we can get. So 19th century brass. When you know, growing up here, my dad played that type of music, and now you know, looking around, wondering why the heck I picked to play euphonium professionally. You know, there's possibly something there, and trying to get that type of exposure in at the the college level, I think, is definitely something that we should explore and, and try to get a little bit more of. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm totally on board with you there because if there's one place that it really can happen, is that it is at the college level. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're talking about early music, the the scene in America is, you know, we have a, a fairly sophisticated early music scene here, but it's nothing like, you know, we we don't have competing orchestras <laughs> like they have in in say Germany or the Netherlands. Um, you know, there it's it's very difficult, I think, for people post college to get their hands on these things and explore them in a really serious way. So I, I really admire the work that y'all are doing in that sense is, is giving people the insight and opportunity to get their hands on historical instruments to explore historical techniques. Because like you're saying, early music, I mean, early music applies to everybody in, in a mm -hmm. sense. And most yeah. of the instruments that we play in the modern orchestra are from the 1850s. I mean, the, the clarinet yeah, that yeah. we play today was patented in 1843. So it's not like we're playing modern instruments. I, I enjoyed the, I think it was the fourth episode that you guys really got into the weeds with the <laughs> development of the euphonium. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, there's Two and certainly a half hours a, in. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's certainly a lot of different directions you can take and a lot of different sort of technologies to look at here. But if you haven't read the, the Bruce Haynes book, The End of Early Music, it's definitely something you should get your hands on because, you know, nice. his definition of early music, which I completely subscribe to, is basically everything before the recording era. I mean, early music mm -hmm. is just an exploration of musical languages that we've lost touch with. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, that's a good way of thinking about it. I haven't, I haven't thought about it that way, but that, that totally makes sense. I'm curious with your experience with 
19th century brass music in high school, that hands-on uh, experience. Were you aware or did you dive into uh, Eastman and Frederick Fennell's influence on that time period of music while you were at Eastman by any chance, or was that not really something that was on your radar at the time? You know, it really wasn't on my radar so much. For whatever reason, it just kind of didn't resonate with me right. I mean, the whole reason why I went to Eastman was I was sort of, I became obsessed with the Marine Band when I was like, I guess, 12 or 13. Hmm. And I kind of based my entire music education up into <laughs> up to my studies at Eastman on, you know, maybe trying to play professionally for military bands. Uh, and Eastman seemed like a really place, really good place to go. Uh, because a lot of military band players come out of there. Mm -hmm. um, somewhere along the line during my studies, mostly because of these old clarinets, <laughs> I got, you know, um, a little bit of perspective into, you know, where I really found my, the, the most satisfaction in music making. Um, but, you know, I, I went to Eastman specifically to study band stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, that Frederick Fennell sort of lineage or, or history definitely plays a role in that, but, you know, specifically, that wasn't kind of what influenced me to get there. Gotcha. Well, I'm just wondering, Dom, questions? is is uh, the school where you did your your masters in Europe? Is there any comparable program in the United States to what you actually, uh, you know, attended that school for, or it was part of why you went over there because that was not something that was offered here yeah so a, a little bit of column a a little bit of column b uh no there are no clarinet programs in the united states for historical performance um there is you can get a minor from the university of indiana or indiana university excuse me um but aside from that there's nowhere to actually study historical performance clarinet specific. Uh, Juilliard has an outstanding historical performance program, but that is aptly called Juilliard 415 because they play music at 415, which is Baroque music, which sort of excludes the vast majority of where I live. Uh, <laughs> you know, Indiana has a great early music program. They're probably the only, you know, the only ones that would include clarinet stuff regularly, but even then they don't really have so many students on a regular basis. And then Oberlin is is quite known for its mm -hmm. uh, historical performance program. Case Western as well. So, I mean, there there is a sort of a, a smattering of places where you can study early music in and the United States. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really, early music is, is kind of its own separate thing. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, there are, you know there are a ton of places that you can study this, and actually, more and more schools are uh, starting bachelor's programs. So the the Conservatory in The Hague, for instance, where I studied, actually has incoming 17, 18 year olds who are studying Baroque violin, which is crazy, right? I mean, they're they're not even getting the the, the degree in the modern instrument. They are going straight into this world of historical performance, which sort of mm -hmm. speaks to the maybe professional climate over there as a you know as opposed to here there are just more opportunities for a 18 19 year old baroque violinist in the netherlands where they play you know 40,000 matthew passions bach matthew passions you yeah, know yeah. A, a spring than than say here in america right using that as a transition point full-time employment in early music performance can you kind of talk a, a little bit about uh what you're currently doing in Colonial Williamsburg? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'm not necessarily considered a full-time early musician. Um, I The majority of my work is freelance um, when it comes to actually 
playing historical clarinets, but I am employed full-time at the Colonial uh, Williamsburg Foundation as a historical interpreter, specifically with military interpretation there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vast majority of things that I am, um, well, that are a part of my job description would include, you know, maintenance and demonstrations of 18th century firearms, being able to talk with visitors and guests about 18th century military practices. And something that I've really sort of snaked into this job, of course, is talking about 18th century military bands, uh, because this is is what I'm most familiar with. Yep. (laughs) Find a job that lets you do what you want to do. So (laughs) I I do a lot of that kind of talking or I guess, preaching uh, at Colonial Williamsburg. And I'm also employed there as a musician. So I, I have two jobs there. At the evening, after five o'clock, you know, I put on a different costume and I take out my clarinet and I get paid to play. You know, before five o'clock, I'm talking about 18th century military bands and, you know, the broader history of 18th century military life. Nice. Well, I'm just curious, what was kind of the interview slash audition process, I guess, for that gig? Yeah, the you know, it's a lot simpler than you might think. So they, you know, when I interviewed for my my full-time position, which is, you know, as a military interpreter, they basically just wanted to make sure I had a good grasp of sort of the historiography and the, you know, the history of the American Revolution, the history of 18th century America. When I auditioned for my um sort of night gig actually (laughs) they found me on instagram which is a really funny thing so (laughs) that's you know it's with colonia williamsburg it's really been an an really internal early music scene for a long time uh they've had a group going all the way back to the 1970s they actually do have a full-time baroque band there but they they play baroque music is that the, Um, the church that's on the main street there where they host those concerts they do, but Bruton Parish Church is actually not a part of Colonial Williamsburg, so it's a the it's one a that's different... kind of like the one that's like kind of on the end there, near, closer to the the shops. On yeah, the, the one uh, right off the Palace Green. That's yeah. actually it's an independent Episcopalian oh, church, wow. um, but they they do collaborations every now and then. Gotcha. I mean, how I got how I got started playing my historical clarinets for Colonial Williamsburg really is exactly what I said. I, I you know. I have a fairly active Instagram account where I, I post videos of myself playing my instrument or instruments. And, uh, you know, after sort of months of telling people, hey, you know, by the way, I play 18th century instruments. If that's something that would be relevant here, somebody stumbled into an actual video on Instagram and said, oh, you play not the Benny Goodman clarinet, but the other clarinet. <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so actually at that point, I, you know, that was probably in October, I want to say, October 2019. And from there, we've really been trying to, to find more places, I think, to, to include this as a part of our regular um, or extra interpretations at the museum. Um, I play primarily, or I was playing until uh, we've had to, to shut down for the last few months, with the dance ensemble at um, Colonial Williamsburg, which the ensemble part is actually the dancers themselves and then there's one musician that accompanies them so i've been dealing a lot with um a lot of 18th century dance music a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of no rests <laughs> just yeah. a lot of notes right. um but other than that some projects that i that we've sort of had in the works that are kind of being disrupted by the, the current situation is cw has a really substantial uh, instrument collection uh one of the instruments that is sort of living with the museum right now but actually belongs to the college of william and mary is an 1816 broadwood piano Uh, which is actually the same type of piano that Beethoven owned. So we were hoping to put together a project this year doing some um, clarinet 
cello piano trios as a commemoration of the 250th Beethoven anniversary, which is this year. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities, but at this point, it's been a lot of sort of independent work or work with um, work with the dance folks. At the time of this interview, it's May 30th. Uh, how how's the climate over in Colonial Williamsburg in terms of opening up and and your workload and stuff? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I don't have any great perspectives on on the opening situation, but um, I can tell you, CW has been a, a fantastic organization in terms of how they've been treating their employees the past few months. Um, you know, for a, a lot of folks, they're not working at the moment. I've been lucky enough to work. Um, really, I've been working for them since the shutdown in a lot of ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I've transitioned basically specifically to social media and content creation, that sort of thing, helping to bring CW, which they've done an amazing job with, uh, by the way, trying to, to bring us into the, the 21st century. Um, and what we've kind of found out from this whole COVID thing uh, is we have a lot more resources available to us than I think we previously imagined in terms of audio and and visual technologies that can really help get our stuff out there into the world, both regular costumed interpretation stuff, but also music. I mean, we're kind of looking at maybe a a, a new era. I mean, for everybody, for all museums or performing arts organizations, we're kind of entering a new era, but uh, you know, they've been grappling with it quite well. And um, Mm -hmm. I have to say, I'm, I'm really proud to, be connected with an organization that has been so generous to its employees. That's for sure. Yeah, that's great to hear. I, Cause I know a lot of the organizations that are maybe being hit pretty hard by all this are the, you know, arts organizations and organizations that rely on, you know, people coming through the town, you know, to see a yeah. bit of the history, and, you know, just kind of that, that kind of thing. So it's good to hear that, you know, you guys are adapting and, and still taking care of everybody who works there. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah, it's yeah. been it's been great. So you mentioned you do some research there as well. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of your research interests are while you're at Colonial Williamsburg? Yeah, so what I've, I mean, I've been back in the U.S. now for just about a year and a half. I got the job just about a year ago. And really what I've been diving deep into um, since I started there are 18th century military bands, specifically 18th century military bands in America. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the big thing that we grapple with often with 18th century music history is, you know, the idea that one, there really isn't music in America, which I think enough has been written to <laughs> disprove that claim, right? There's a lot of music in America actually in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, that the the only military music that's associated with what's you know known as the Continental Army is the Fife and Drum Corps, which actually the Fife and Drum Corps is kind of a romantic, uh, you know, the, the, when we have an imagination of the American Revolutionary War, we think profoundly of the Fife and Drum Corps as right. the musical voice of America, when in reality, Fife and Drum Corps only have the opportunity to first of all play together when the entire regiment is well in one place which is sometimes a rare situation mm-hmm. uh, and then second of all you know we know from the records that not everybody is playing from the same standardized fifes you know we're not going to mm-hmm. see groups of 24 fifers really ever congregated together playing the way that they do say at colonial williamsburg so in in terms of what's being represented at colonial williamsburg and say what is being you know the historical reality is there isn't acknowledged difference there mm-hmm. um you know the the fife and drum chords you might see at colonial williamsburg is definitely a performance ensemble whereas fife and drums in the 18th century are you know 
practical military radio men, you know, and they yeah, need yeah. to be acknowledged as such. I mean, yeah, these guys, yeah. they had tremendous responsibilities that, that extended beyond playing tunes. Playing tunes was completely secondary. Um, so the question is, you know, what was American music like or what was military music like in America in the 18th century? And, and really what you start to see right off the bat in the Revolutionary War are regiments trying to raise what are known as bands of music. Um, bands of music, as has already been said in, in one of your previous episodes, would typically constitute, um, you know, two to four soprano wind instruments. So either two clarinets or two um, oboes and then two horns and two bassoons. That would be sort of your ideal. And actually, you see a decent number of these being raised in the Continental Army. Um, it's actually it was a big surprise to me that, you know, especially as far south as, as a place like in Virginia, which wasn't, you know, it was the most populous colony in 1775, but not necessarily concentrated populations of folks. Mm. But in 1779, right. there's theoretically a, a, not theoretically, there's definitively a, a band, <laughs> um, a band of music being raised for the second Virginia regiment um, that now theoretically is made up of entire, entirely of Virginians. Mm. Um, gotcha. So this would be really the first time that we would experience a performance ensemble, military performance ensemble raised entirely from Virginian men, which is, I think, pretty extraordinary. 1779 is pretty early, especially when you look at the, the, the previous history. There's not a whole lot going on with clarinets um, in Virginia before that point. So I've been really sitting with Colonel Febiger's 2nd Virginia Band and spending a lot of my time researching that specific group. Where's that research happening? Are, are you going through the Library of Congress? Are there, is there a local library that has a lot of this kind of stuff? Yeah, so when it comes to um, source material, a lot of the research for the Second Virginia Band is being drawn from a variety of sources. Uh, most notably, there are letters on um, the Library of Congress that are digitally available. There's also a, a good amount collected in the Febiger papers, which the John D. Rockefeller Jr. Library has at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Um, but then also perhaps the, the most enlightening resource that I've been able to dive through um, is Fold3. I don't know if you guys have done much diving through that. It's, it's a mm -hmm. database through Ancestry.com. But through Fold3, I'm actually, I was actually able to find the uh, rosters for this band from 1779, 1780, 1781, and 1782. So I could tell you, which previously hasn't existed, but I could tell you mm -hmm. the names of everyone who was a part of this organization, who was a part of nice. this band. And now the nitty gritty part, which <laughs> I enjoyed, um, is it Dr. Jenkins was in your, he was the, in your fourth episode? Yes. And he was, he was talking, he was talking about, you know, being able to tell what these guys are playing, right? I'm in the same situation. So I'm looking at all of the players in this band and I can't tell you what any of them played, but I can tell you there were four clarinet players, there were two bassoon players, and there were two important players. Hmm. Um, and like all of those guys- of a, It's like a game of guess who, you know, you have it, like a bunch of faces and <laughs> yeah. It really like is. Putting them down one by one. Yeah. I mean, and, and you kind of get into the weeds there you sort of have to ask yourself, and I, I was dealing uh, a lot with this in my master's research in The Hague as well, how important is personal biography? I mean, it is every, studying every individual person is obviously extremely important, but there are greater um, sort of implications or, 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 or greater lessons to be learned from kind of having the mass of people <laughs> there yeah. in general. So I know Dr. Jenkins talked about how 
uh, I don't know if it was through, what did you say, threefold is what it was? Fold three, yeah. Fold three. Fold three yeah. Um, but I do know that he did purchase an Ancestry.com account, and with the roster that he had, oh, I guess it wouldn't be Fold three. He had the roster through the Marine Band already, through their mm. records and stuff. And then he actually used Ancestry.com to find the living family of these people. And he would just reach out and ask them. You're like, oh, yeah, I have a picture. Here here they are. And he's like, oh, because that was the euphonium player. Kind of thing. <laughs> so he, and he was able to, like, compile these biographies and fill out his dissertation that way. But then in some other cases, he had a biography fleshed out for one of these musicians. And he reached out to the living family to see if they had a picture. And they're like, yeah, we knew that, you know, he was, you know, a member of the family. But there was this big falling out. And we don't really know anything about him. So Dr. Jenkins was able to, like, fill in a gap of their family history for them type of thing. So Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he also so. told a story in one of the studio classes about how he was able to, like, rescue a recording of... Um, oh, yeah. yeah I forget crazy. who the euphonium player was, but he, like Chris was saying, reached out to a living relative, and the the relative was like, yeah, I mean, we have these old LPs or records or, or whatever kind of medium they were on. I, I was just going to throw them out, but here, do you want them? And Dr. James <laughs> took them to the Marine Band, and their audio guys were playing them like... This guy's soloing with the band. We don't have these recordings. Yeah, these don't exist yeah, anymore. Gap, gaps awesome. in the, the Marine Band records, which is yeah. ridiculous to think about. Yeah, so, that is amazing. It's amazing the kind of stuff you can you can find out now. You know, with with digging yeah. in these these databases and stuff. It's it's really, really pretty cool. Oh well, and especially going through the newspaper archives. I mean, what's on Library of Congress is already tremendous, but it doesn't really dive too much into the 18th century. I mean, one of the things that I've been really thankful of with my association with Colonial Williamsburg is I have access to a huge number of 18th century um, printed, you know, source databases. Um, and and you know the, the things that you can find all you need to do is a keyword search for band of music and you can quickly realize <laughs> there's a lot of different military bands going you know playing in the in the 18th century specifically in the 1770s i mean as early as 1768 there are british military bands in boston right because the mm -hmm. british come over to boston in 1768 to you know try to get a hold on things and what <laughs> do they bring with them they bring their bands uh, i mean it's really natural i mean one of the things that we have to acknowledge about all military bands and i think extending all the way to the Civil War is these bands are meant to be a part of the culture of the regiment, right? In the 18th century and to an extent the 19th century, military organizations are not these hugely centralized armies that we have today, right? To, to equate today's United States Army to say the 1860s United States Army or even 1776, the Continental Army would be a huge, huge mistake. Yeah, in the 18th century and the 19th century, they're trying to create real definitions for themselves. And, and how do you do this? You have individual uniforms, you have individual bands, you have individual decorations, or you call yourself different things. That's why yeah. you have, for instance, you know, General Mockton's 17th Regiment of Foot, not just the 17th Regiment of Foot, but General Mockton's 17th mm -hmm. Regiment of Foot. And they'll carry that with them for years yeah. afterwards. Yeah, I know a lot of that along the same lines was just the, the United States's fear of uh, overall federal power. And they wanted to decentralize, you know, the government uh, and have the power in the states in the that time period, you know, 18th century, early 19th century. So the idea of having a large standing army was kind of contradictory to their idea of having a small federal government. So by having a small 
standing federal army. They were relying all on militias, uh, regiments yeah. and stuff. So yeah, that, that very localized tradition, I'm sure was able to kind of get fostered in, in that environment too, knowing that, you know, all these militias and thus the bands, you know, were tied to the very small local level. Yeah, but I mean, even even going before the United States, right, I, I think there's probably a connection to be drawn between federalism or anti-federalism. But the British Army in, in the 1770s is really just about 100 years old. And mm -hmm. at this point, the way that they're creating this army is exactly in what you're saying. You have local lords who are colonels who are responsible. And a colonel isn't necessarily a military rank like it is today. A colonel would be someone who is in charge of a regiment. So mm -hmm. Lord Cornwallis, for instance, was a general. He was also colonel of the, and this is where my colleagues at Coney Williamsburg will kick me in the face, he's colonel mm -hmm. of a regiment, something, 40-something. And so it was their responsibility, right? They're, these yeah. sort of lords' responsibility to create these armies for the larger, um, the larger government. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, we we definitely we inherited that tradition from European powers. I mean, there's not a whole lot that's original about the United States yeah, military true. in the 18th century mm -hmm. or in the 19th century, or or um, just the United States. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and, and that's it, right? I mean, when you're when you're looking at musically, musically speaking, the idea that there's you know kind of dumbed down American music is. I think a little bit ridiculous considering who's populating, <laughs> who's populating the country and who's populating the bands and, and really what sort of culture is, is coming about because in the 1770s, who's in the bands? Yes, there are some Americans, but most of the time we're looking at German immigrants or we're looking at, um, you know, in the late 18th century, French and Italian immigrants, a huge wave of French musicians come into the country in the 1790s that we never, ever talk about. Um, and you know, the 1790s has a lot going on. There's a lot of different stuff to focus on. Maybe music isn't the most important thing to focus on, but when we're trying to culturally understand our country, you know, events like the French Revolution or Haitian Revolution are critically important to understanding how music from Europe was being transferred to the United States. In the same way that understanding the revolutions of 1848 is a important date for us to really acknowledge, well, how did a lot of these fantastic band musicians, not just brass band, but larger concert band or orchestra musicians come to America, they're usually reacting to something in Europe and, and traveling overseas and populating, in some cases, even putting out of business musical organizations that already exist. I mean, yeah, in the yeah. 1790s, the French musicians came to Charleston, South Carolina, and they completely shut down the English theater company there because the French company was so much better. They were highly trained French musicians and they settled there and they lived there for a long time. And they, they bred these musical cultures that, uh, you know, we don't, often associate with the early United States. Along the lines of some of the research that I'm conducting, I know Steven's kind of been right there with me and we've discussed it, um, but with Civil War brass bands, this idea of certain issues coming up in terms of some of the repertoire that's played or in terms of some of the uh, impressions that are given by some of the bands. I'm curious, in as representing a musician and talking about military bands in the prior century, so in the 18th century. I'm wondering, have you ever had any tourists that are visiting Colonial Williamsburg kind of challenge uh, the music at all or challenge the impression that's given off by the musicians in in the, the area? 
I haven't really run into anything at, at Colonial Williamsburg just because by the nature of the museum itself, I think people are, are very enthusiastic about, you know, anything 18th century. Uh, where I would say the majority of, of controversy, if we can call things like this controversy, would come into play is uh, actually, you know, working with other you know, musicians who are trained to play these instruments who are familiar with 18th century repertoires. Um, I mean, if you think about it, when you think about the harmony ensemble or the wind band of the 18th century, the mm -hmm. first name that comes to mind is Mozart, right? Yeah. Uh, we have the three big wind serenades, the E flat, the C minor, and the B flat major. And those are sort of the, the entire core <laughs> of, of what this ensemble is meant to play. When in reality, mm -hmm. that's actually way out in left field. I mean, that, yeah, that's true. an exception to the rule. And most of what we look at musically speaking are going to be exceptions to how sort of that era actually sounded. Um, the vast majority of music that people are playing in the 1770s and 1780s for this particular ensemble, the band of music, are going to be very similar to what y'all are familiar with in the 19th century, opera arrangements. Mm -hmm. um, in the Paris, the Paris Opera was a hugely uh, popular and hugely well-funded organization in the 1770s and 1780s. And as a result, all of these tunes are becoming very popular. All of the wind bands are going to be playing these transcriptions. And this is what we would probably most commonly associate with the wind bands that are even here in the United States. We know George Washington, for instance, is greeted in Williamsburg in 1781 by a French military band playing um, playing aria arrangements from a French mm -hmm. opera. So I think really, you know, the controversy comes into to what we want to pay attention to. Uh, we want mm -hmm. to pay attention to the big names. We don't necessarily, or maybe, you know, we're not even really aware, I think, as a, a music culture of a lot of the 18th century wind band music because there is a lot of this music. Everybody wanted one. Um, they were the cool thing to have. I mean, Thomas Jefferson writes a letter in the late 1770s to a friend in Italy basically saying, hey, things at Monticello are going fine. Yeah, the revolution's happening, but it's kind of a stalemate. Uh, what I could really use at Monticello right now um, is a band of music. I would really like to have two oboe players, two bassoon players, two horn players, and two clarinet players to help sort of, you know, give Monticello that extra spark that I think it needs. By the way, if these guys can also be gardeners, chefs, et cetera, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, everybody, everybody is looking for, for these musicians. Um, mm -hmm. And what that letter I think does really well is it sort of outlines the status of musicians in 18th century, um, you know, Europe and America. The fact that musicians, up until this point, and for the vast majority of the 19th century, are craftsmen, right? They're they're meant to be of a servile class, more so than a, you know, up on the pedestal performance class yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of musician that we'd regularly associate today. For sure. There, there's definitely a past to be grappled with here. I'm not sure that the music. You know, and mu musically speaking, there is a, a huge part of it. I don't think the vast majority of stuff that we're we're dealing with maybe is as dark as uh, it could it could be made to be. Um, but you know, if you look at the first album that we recorded with Newberries, we have a, a piece on there called Plantation Echoes. I mean, that's yeah. not super PC, right? And and it's a, it's just a part of understanding this history, right? Is is right. grappling with these big questions. I mean, <laughs> if if you didn't perform music that was either written by people of great controversy or that wasn't controversial, we'd be kind of depriving ourselves of, of the historical insight that is probably necessary, right? Yeah. Um, you're gonna find controversy in every rock that you that you lift mm -hmm. up. Um, now, how you handle that controversy is a different story. Yeah, well, I guess some of what I was 
trying to, to prod a little bit in some of what I was trying to leave with a question earlier in the episode in terms of audience receptiveness to some of the music that's being played in Colonial Williamsburg. Like uh, a year or two ago, there was a committee formed to research George Mason as a person and see if we should change the name of the university. And they decided not to, but they decided to add and are in the process of building uh, artwork in the main center part of our campus where the George Mason statue is uh, Mm. titled the, well, I don't know what the exact title is, but it's silhouettes of children and it's supposed to represent the slave children owned by George Mason. And they're using that as a way to kind of contextualize and be upfront, but to not hide that aspect of who George Mason was, despite being a founding father, uh, you know, but you know, you know, they're doing the same thing at, at the University of Virginia, actually, which is yeah. a school that Thomas Jefferson founded. Right. Um, and they're in the, in the midst of a big project right now to have more uh, representation of the enslaved peoples that you know were responsible for actually building the school. At Colonial Williamsburg, we we grapple with this a lot. Um, but really, you know, and I, you know, this is I'm not an expert in this, and I, you know, don't claim to be an expert in it at all. But in in the way that we were see slavery in the antebellum period in the 19th century um you know it's it gets very complicated for for probably the the biggest reason is the 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 abolition of the slave trade in the 1820s i want to say the international slave trade in the 1820s and so it becomes an internal economy in the in the 18th century uh, slavery is a horrendous horrendous institution Um, but one of the things that we start to see culturally is um and because of things like exoticism, which are again a you know a terrible sort of um, stereotype, creating stereotypes of of people you know not from Europe, is you'd actually have Africans being brought into bands as percussionists because they were much more skilled than say European percussionists, or were seen to be much more skilled um, as as European percussionists. Uh, there's there's actually a fair amount of m- musical history with Africans. Um, in 18th century yeah. in 18th century virginia for mm-hmm. sure um but one of the things that we do at, at williamsburg is we also have an 18th century um african-american music interpretation where they do traditional sort of african um dances and african music and mm-hmm. and try to highlight highlight that part of the history but you know one of the big parts of my research at, at cw so far in addition to doing the band research is doing bugle research <laughs> But, you know, in, in the 18th century, it's not just the fife and the drum that are really important to field music. It's also the bugle and the trumpet. And the trumpet and the bugle are different things. And the bugle is not the type of bugle that we would commonly associate with the 19th century. In fact, there's a lot of mystery surrounding what a bugle is in the 18th century. Um, and we know that there are different field calls for bugles, French horns, and trumpets. We know this because it's printed as such, not the actual you know notes for the calls themselves, but people in the cavalry, for instance, were required to play the trumpet, the French horn, and the bugle. And uh, one of the big, if we want to talk about sort of African-American involvement in the 18th century militias of Virginia, is all freemen between eighteen six uh, between the ages of 16 and 60 are required to serve in the militia in Virginia before 1775. That's just a part of a blanket law um, that covers all free people between 16 and 60. And there are free Africans in Virginia before 1775. Now, these folks are legally not going to be allowed to carry arms, but one of the places that they see uh, 
the most amount of service is actually as field musicians, as trumpeters. Uh, so there's a tradition in the 18th century of African trumpet players, uh, African horn players in, in Virginia that widely goes sort of unnoticed. It's, yeah, it's sort of a part of the story that's for whatever reason not talked about. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a book. Um, it's basically a bibliography, but it's of um, very specific 19th century band music by African-American composers. And the Mason <laughs> Library has it, and I wish they were open so I, so I could grab it. Because I looked on yeah. Amazon, and it's like one of those books where like there's only one copy available, and it's a hardcover, and someone's selling it for like $400. But um, that's something that I want to dive into. I mean, because how you were saying, there's like a whole you know part of this where African-American musicians were brought into these bands. I mean, there's a whole, there's a bunch of brass band music by African-American composers that is out there somewhere, maybe. I don't know if like any copies of it survive. I haven't been able to find anything, any like actual sheet music. And obviously there probably wouldn't be recordings, but. Um, well, they have a lot of piano reductions, like uh, right. they would write the band music and then they would it would become popular. And obviously people don't have brass bands in their house, so they would. <laughs> <laughs> the music publisher right. would write it out for piano but put like on the cover like as played by the so-and-so band and i know yeah. that that's yeah. done a lot with francis johnson's music who is mm -hmm. one of those composers and musicians that would be in that uh bibliography that you're talking about Stephen. but yeah i know right. that there's definitely at least piano reductions of his music there and then what's tricky about that is like a lot of times those piano reductions when they go through the publishing process will get miss um miscontributed to somebody else or mm. they just won't put a composer's name on it. So it's like kind of that thing, like you wonder how much of this published music was actually written by somebody else. And in the sure. United States after the civil war, if, a, if an African-American person wrote the music, chances are if it was published anywhere, you know, below, I don't know, New York, <laughs> right. it's probably not going to be attributed to the correct person. I mean, you see that with Scott Joplin. I mean, a lot of his published sheet music, he didn't have uh, like a publishing deal. He didn't get any royalties from it. And a lot of it doesn't even have his name on it. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this speaks to kind of another big issue. I think that, that we have, obviously authorship is extremely important, especially when it has to do with, um, you know, giving credit to, to particularly those who have been deprived very mm -hmm. purposefully of credit. Uh, but in the, in the 18th century, just the way that publishing works, it's misattribution is extremely, extremely popular. Um, and that's just kind of the way, the way it is. In the 19th century, I'm sure it's the same way. I mean, you guys have talked a lot about in your other podcasts about <laughs> folks who would literally write out, you know, they would copy music into their band books, right? I mean, this is, mm -hmm. this is a practice <laughs> that goes since the beginning of time, right? I mean, if there's no copy, copyright, and there's not wide publication, <laughs> there are a lot of people writing down things that they hear. And there are a lot of people, you know, maybe making small adjustments and, and publishing as their own. Um, it's not, not terribly uncommon. Beethoven dealt with a many, many, many uh, issues with people trying to pass off his works as his own uh, or as their own, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's a part of the music, <laughs> the music industry uh, right. always yeah. has been. This is where I think the biggest hole in late 19th century band research is at the moment is trying to apply maybe the things that are at, the forefront of historical performance now when it comes to late 19th century performance on, on string and vocal music to the band world. Because uh, you can't, I mean, these <laughs> different genres didn't live in vacuums, right? There's going to be yeah. cross-pollination everywhere. And, and knowing the way that some of this music is written, 
where it's not necessarily a rocket science alto two or alto one part or even you know a, a tenor two part you know that there are going to be you know moments in this music where the cornets might be a little bit more free than we would expect them to be if we were say in the concert hall with the conductor yeah, staring yeah. at us and conducting us because the vast majority of this music is also going to be played unconducted mm-hmm. um, which is another important important thing to to recognize i deal with the same thing with 18th century band music you know you put you put a wind uh octet in front of a young conductor and you say this is your training ensemble and this is music that was never meant to be conducted uh mm-hmm. it was it's it's chamber music exclusively and that's kind of the way it should be you're depriving the musicians i think a, a huge part of the the process by throwing it together so quickly with a baton um, yeah. So it's an easy, easy way out, though, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, and and you know, unfortunately, that's kind of the way that you have to do things these days because you don't. So much of what we do is freelance. Again, this is why it's so yeah. important to to have colleges uh, really mm-hmm. taking responsibility for for exposing students because for a whole year you can give folks the opportunity to play together, and mm-hmm. in a year you can make a lot of headway. Now, having to refill that band every year becomes complicated. Yeah. Um, but when you're thinking about these 19th century bands, these were guys who played together for years. They developed, yeah, ex- yeah. you know, extremely Definitely. personal relationships in the same way that your, um, you know, several of the guests on your podcast have with ensembles they've played with, with chamber, on- chamber ensembles they've played with. Mm-hmm. So it's another big issue that we we face, I think, in the world of historical performance, and particularly in in sort of the more niche stuff in the 19th century world, is how can we develop relationships amongst players. To, to put something out there that might actually be representative of what we're trying to do. I know that's kind of a sort of a philosophical question mm-hmm. about it, but um, yeah, I, the, the whole idea of throwing a band together for one concert is, I don't think super historical, even with minimal yeah. rehearsal time that they had in the 18th and 19th century, they were all players who, who knew each other, who played together constantly and, yeah, and were familiar. Cool. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks again for chatting with us today, Dom. Um, we always laugh at this because a lot of people's gigs, you know, have been canceled or postponed with the current situation. But um, let us know kind of what you have going on, had going on, or hopefully will have going on in the near future. Yeah. So, um, you know, the next few years, uh, who knows what's going to happen, right? Uh, right. But I would encourage you to to check out actually a, a, another friend of mine's podcast um, that I did a little bit of a recording for uh, a few weeks ago. That's going to be coming up here in the the middle of June. I think they're going to start releasing episodes, and it's um, podcast called Music Box Concerts. So it's definitely definitely interesting if you have uh, any interest in, in listening to me talk a little bit more about historical performance and, and specifically playing things like the Bassett Horn. I, I do a lot of talking mm-hmm. about that. Um, otherwise. You know, when, when things open up at, at CW, please come on down and, and, and visit us. And we'll have a lot of precautions to make sure everyone's safe. That's for sure. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was scheduled to do a, a residence at the University of Virginia uh, next spring. Um, we'll see if that happens. But if you're in Virginia, keep your eyes peeled for that. And another thing uh, with Colonial Williamsburg is we have, um, hopefully, as I mentioned earlier, our, our Beethoven 250 project is not completely dead uh, <laughs> because of, of Corona. So uh, keep your eyes sort of on, on Colonial Williamsburg and you, you might even see some 19th century instruments that aren't so colonial being featured. So. That's kind of kind of what I got for you guys at this point. We're just gonna have to see 
you know, what comes to all of this uh, Corona stuff, but hey, thanks for offering this, and not, not even a distraction, but just this amazing opportunity to, to dive into this world during this time. It's been a real breath of fresh air, that's for sure. Thank you, Dom Giordino, for speaking with us on the Early American Brass Band podcast for episode number 11. Uh, as I think we might have mentioned in the episode, I've been talking to Dom for over a year now, just corresponding through Facebook and email and stuff. It was really awesome to get to meet him, quote unquote, through Zoom right. for the first time, but actually get to speak with him. He was a really nice guy. And as we mentioned also, Stephen, I know that you, you've known him for a long time, you know, having been uh, friends with him through Eastman and stuff. So. Thank you for for making this connection. Yeah, great. Yeah, it was great to catch up with him. And, um, you know, as everybody heard, you know, he's very thoughtful and very well spoken about the things he's he's researching and his experiences. So we were super lucky to to nab him for an episode. Um, If you liked what you heard, you can come hang out with us on social media. We're everywhere on social media everywhere. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And up on social media, particularly Facebook, Instagram, Uh, And YouTube, we excerpt some of these things and we post some things that didn't make it into the episode proper. Um, So the best way to ensure that you're hearing everything is by following us everywhere on every platform. Um, You can just search the Early American Brass Band podcast and we'll pop right up and give us a follow. Give us a subscribe, a review, a thumbs up on whatever platform you are. We greatly appreciate that. This episode's featured album is the third and final Civil War Brass Band CD by the American Brass Quintet. This is volume two of their Moravian 26 North Carolina CDs titled Cheer Boys Cheer. Uh, On a previous episode we had Raymond Mace and he was talking uh, about his experience recording all of these albums and this is the third of the three and the second of the two. Well, obviously it's going to be three of three and two. It's the last one. It's the last one they did. Uh, it's a really good one. A lot of great music, a lot of great playing. Uh, if you recall from Mace's interview, they're all on period mouthpieces for this recording. Uh, so it's extra authentic and sounds really good. So check out Cheer Boys Cheer by the American Brass Quintet Brass Band. Uh, and we will have a little write-up and link to the album at the end of our show notes. So please check that out at www.eabbpodcast.com. And you got anything, Stephen? No, I'm good. Hope everybody's staying safe. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week.